I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. You are going to love today's guest. It's the one, the only, Apollo Ono. He stole America's heart in dramatic style during one of the craziest short track speed skating races in history. After colliding with three other racers and hitting the wall, he managed to throw his skate over the line and win a silver medal, setting the stage for what would become a storied career. Apollo is an eight-time Olympic medalist, the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian of all time. The heart of our discussion on today's show really focuses on the mentality of sport. He shares with us what really created his performance mindset in the very beginning, how he had to pivot and reinvent himself after his second Olympics, and the intentional lengths he was willing to go to to find fulfillment in his performance. The mental game is one of my absolute favorite topics, and if that's something that you're wanting to dive deeper into, I've actually created three easy ways for you to learn more about mental training. Go visit laurawilkinson.com slash learn. I'll link to it in the show notes also to make it a little easier. But at laurawilkinson.com slash learn, you'll find an option that's right for you from just dipping your toe in the water with a freebie that contains five smart strategies for confidence, all the way to a complete step-by-step program, including coaching from yours truly for the athlete that's ready to take their game to the next level. Before we get into the episode with Apollo, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us. This helps us continue to bring on these awe-inspiring guests week after week like we have been. Now, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Okay, I am so proud and excited today to welcome Apollo Ono to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Apollo, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Laura. Now, and I wanted to check in because I know we were just talking about it before we started recording, but you are in California and tell me what you see out your window right now. Well, typically I see, you know, I can see the city and the Hollywood sign um, from where my place is here in um, kind of towards the center of the city and I can't see past the end of the street. So the smoke is slightly better today, but because of all the fires that's been going on, you know, as I was kind of telling you before we started recording was, you know, all of the kind of central Northern California, California fires, there was like this wind pattern over the weekend where essentially counterclockwise would then funnel all of the smoke and kind of just blanket over all of SoCal. So, you know, driving around yesterday at like three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon, and it feels like it's the middle of December because it's dark outside. It's very, very eerie and very, very awkward. So hopefully... Hopefully we can get this thing under control because the only thing, as I said before, only thing we're missing is a couple of aliens to show up <laughs> hovering over Santa Monica Pier. And that would be the perfect end of the 2020. It would be just, um, yeah, it would just put a nice little cherry on top, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay. I think the first time we actually met in person was in London in 2012. We were both there for NBC. I think that was kind of our first real Olympics not being athletes. Is that your, that was your first experience kind of broadcasting, right? That was my, yeah. So I was two years out of my retirement and it was the first time I was, you know, on the other side, I think of the camera lens. So what did you think about that? Do you like that? You know, it was, it was surprisingly like really easy. Um, (laughs) it, It was fun. It was fun, but it was definitely awkward. Right. So I'm sitting, I'll always remember this because this was kind of the aha moment for me during that, those Olympics in London was I was sitting in the press conference area and this was pre games. 
and USA Swimming had started funneling in their athletes to then take questions about the games upcoming. This would mm-hmm. be probably the last official press conference for all the athletes, minus the individual ones that you would see leading up to their first competition. And as they start piling in and, you know, one athlete after the next, and then Michael Phelps is obviously one of the stars of of those Olympic Games. And we all have a chance to raise our hand and I raise a hand. He picks me, which is hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, I ask him the question and then he answers. And at that moment, I was like, wow, this is very different. This is what it looks like from their point of view. I'd never actually sat in those seats before. I'd always been up on the podium looking at the reporters, waiting and anticipating for a question. And now I was the one asking out of my sheer curiosity about his, you know, his particular career path, what his mindset was. And that's just very, very different. So that's so cool. Have, have you been to many more Olympics doing this, that kind of role? Yeah. So I went to the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, Russia. I had skipped the 2016 Olympics and then I was in Pyeongchang, the Winter Olympics in South Korea in 2018. And then, you know, was supposed to be at the Olympics right now, or actually last month. And that's being pushed back towards next year, which I, I, I'm pretty sure will happen. I'd love to take your, I'd love your take on this, but I think it'll probably be a spectator free Olympics, uh, which is going to be very strange. I hope not. I, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of hope we can get to a more normal place, even if it's only partly filled, just to have, you know, there, it's just different when there's an audience. There's there's just more to it. It doesn't feel like, it feels like a workout sometimes, I think, if there's not people watching and cheering and being crazy. I don't know. What, what, what would you feel like without an audience? I don't think I would compete the same way. Yeah. I think that's what makes the Olympics so special is the fact that you've got all these sports on this moment in time. And you've got not just the people there, but then the feeling of all of the millions, if not a billion people watching this all around the world. And, you know, when you go to a track and field event, for example, in the Summer Olympics, and you have 80,000 people in the stands watching a men or women's potential race uh, about to unfold, I mean, it's electrifying. And you can't describe it to people unless they go and experience it because it's a feeling and an emotion and this electricity that runs through the air is... It's just such a unique feeling. And I I can't imagine what's happening. Like when you watch professional sports today and and they're doing a really good job, very creative, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got fan noise with the MLB, you've got, you know, the NBA and all the different, I think, ideas that they're trying to create to continue sport, because I think sport is really important for us right now. But the Olympics is just, it's going to be a strange place. So, you know, I I think, I, I hope It'll be normalized in some degree. And and I guess we're going to see what's going to happen with these vaccines coming up towards the end of the year. But this has been a very challenging year for a lot of people. And I can only imagine, like, you know, if, if you can imagine your last year as an athlete, and if you were going into these games in Tokyo and you had this thought process of, this is my last Olympics, this is my last go, I'm ready, I'm ready to peak. And then all of a sudden in February, March, they're saying, eh, the games may not happen this year. The games may happen next year, but I'm not sure. I mean, that's a that's a big, big change. And that's a huge adaptation that needs to occur as an athlete who potentially only has that last couple of months of training left within them. So there's some challenges here. What? Yeah, I don't know if you knew. I'm, I'm actually training for Tokyo. I'm back in the water and I've been competing and, and training toward a fourth Olympics. <laughs> Oh, seriously, that's amazing. (laughs) Surprise. But I talked to Marielle Zagunas. I know you know Marielle. And um, she had just qualified for her fifth games when the shutdown happened. And so we, we talked really raw about like how that felt and how she was just 
Yeah, it, it was just like a gut punch, you know, and do you keep going for another year? How do you make it happen? There's people who are finishing school who had other plans or, you know, a lot of people had, you know, a really hard decision to make. So I think by this point now, a lot of people have made that decision and are working to either go forward or move on. But yeah, it's been a, yeah, 2020, just 2020. <laughs> But let's get into why you're here, Apollo. Like we all know you as a speed skating legend, but that wasn't your first sport that you were pretty phenomenal at. Where did you start? I actually began my my sporting roots in traditional American stick and ball sports. So, you know, basketball, baseball, football, track and field. I did not excel at any of them particularly. This is, you know, this is, you know, younger than 12 years old. And I actually was a swimmer. You know, I was a part of the Highline Swim Club in Washington State out of Seattle. And I trained with a team there. And, you know, I was a state champion breaststroke athlete. And it was a very interesting time because I actually didn't like swimming, but I excelled at it to a degree where I was very natural. And I always say that I think it was the natural excess fat in my body. So I had very high buoyancy. <laughs> But I um I loved sports in general, and I didn't see short track speed skating really until I was about you know twelve years old, and that's when my I kind of had that spark in my eye, and I saw something I'd never seen or experienced before. And my only other experience with with skating was literally going to the local I uh to the local roller rink on the weekends. Growing up in Seattle, it rains all the time, and so you're always looking for an indoor place to have fun with your friends. And the roller rink happened to be that location. And that's really what began my interest in skating per se in a general term. Oh, nice. So did you do inline skating for a while before speed skating? I did. I did. I, I, you know, it began with, you know, you go to the roller rink on a Friday night and all of a sudden they say, okay, it's do the hokey skate. pokey with your friends. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, they're like, okay, now it's fast skate or speed skate. And then I don't even, this is such a strange, you know, phenomenon. It's like for people who've never been and don't know what I'm talking about, they essentially just play like high intensity music for one song. And then people just go out there and they just skate around really fast, but there's no structure or organization. You just literally just whipping around. Oh yeah. I it's remember almost, doing that. Yeah. But I, I always look back and I'm like, that's kind of weird, right? There's like, there's like <laughs> no race. There's just like, you just go fast until the song ends. Like, what is this? Um, and there's no prize anyway. But so during those times, someone had asked me, Hey, had, do you want to skate with the team? And I was like, what do you mean the team? They're like, Well, there's an actual speed inline skating team that practices during the week and on the weekends. And that began my my interest towards that interesting sport. And so how did that morph into speed skating on ice? So I didn't know anything about speed skating on ice. I knew nothing about the sport of short track speed skating. However, when I saw the sport for the first time when I was 12 and then again when I was 14 years old in the 92 and then the 1994 Olympics, I was really, really interested and interested in the way that you know, I just I was fascinated with what I was seeing. I had never heard about the sport, these athletes leaning over these impossible angles. Wasn't that like the first time it was in the Olympics too? I think 88, it was a demonstration sport. Okay. Yeah. 88, it was introduced as a demonstration sport. And then 92 and 94, it was an official Olympic sport. So it's a you know, fairly new sport. Although the sport had been around for a long time. Speed skating itself had been around for many, many, many years. But it was the first time I think that the, from an organizational perspective, they were able to put together, you know, these racing structures and teams, et cetera. And when I first saw it, it was amazing. And then my father and I drove from Seattle to Vancouver, BC, 
And my time spent in Vancouver, BC was solely bent on one thing. And that was observing and watching these Canadian athletes who were having these local competitions in and around the Vancouver area. That's what really changed my love for the sport. And that's when I was like wide eyed and, and just, it looked so impossible to me that these guys were leaning over these impossible angles going like 30 miles an hour inside of a hockey rink. It just was so (laughs) cool looking. I'd never seen it before. And it was, it was amazing. And that's what began my, my kind of road town towards this path. Well, so how do you know you're right for short track versus long track? Short track speed skating for people who are not familiar is, is raced on a 111 meter track, which if you don't know what that is, it's essentially set up on the inside of an Olympic sized hockey rink. Okay. Uh, indoors. Long track speed skating can be indoors or outdoors. However, it's on a 400 meter oval. And so think a, a, tr- a traditional track and field track covered in ice and short track speed skating is raced. And those raced, that raced meaning is you have five or six men or women on the start line. You're jostling for position, you're passing inside and outside, you're defending, et cetera. So time is important, but it's not the most important thing. Strategy is very, very important in the sport of short track. In long track speed skating, it's all about speed very much like track and field. You want to go as fast as you as you can go. You stay in your own lane and you finish the race. And so th- there's strategy involved in terms of racing your own race, but you don't have to worry about drafting as much. You don't have to worry about other people falling into you as much. You don't have to worry about all these different variables of change. Theoretically and typically, if you are the fastest and the best athlete in, in long track speed skating, you'll win the race. In short track speed skating, you can run the same race probably four different times and probably get three to four different winners. (laughs) So that's what was also interesting to me about the sport of short track is the body types were also slightly different. So traditionally, long track speed skating has guys who are much taller, much bigger in general Hmm. because of the larger oval. And then short track typically has, and I would say on average, probably a three inch height reduction, call it, um, per athlete. So- if the typical athlete in short track speed skating is 5'9 to 5'11, in long track, I would say they're much taller. So almost all of the ones that I know of are over six foot who are kind of the top echelon tier, except for one guy named Derek Para, who was very short, but he he was he won a gold. I love Derek. He's great. Now, diving is a little bit like that for us, too. Like on springboard, you tend to get a little bit bigger girls. And on platform, they tend to be a a little bit smaller. You don't need the same kind of power to work with and move the springboard because the platform is is still in steady. So it's it's interesting how the body dynamics can change even within a sport like that. Are there many crossover athletes that do both long track and short track? There's only been a few who've ever been able to have success in both. Um, One of them is Shawnee Davis. He had success in both. But most of the time, you will never, ever see a long track athlete go to the short track. And I'm not sure why. I always like to say it's because we train harder. It's much more of a difficult (laughs) sport, as I tease my long track friends. But you, you actually see many, many athletes go from short track to long track. So you'll see them start their career in short track and towards the end of their career, they will make a transition into the long track world. And it's, and the training is, is, you know, similar, but they're actually wildly different. And both sports train extremely hard with tons of volume. And it's really like a full-time endeavor. As as you know, it's, it's something that you can't do part-time or, or, you know, half-time. Did you ever consider trying long track, like at the end of your career or anything? 
Or was that just never, nah, I don't want to do it. So I, I did long track in the beginning of my career just oh. to get more skating under my belt. And I really loved, we at the time, it was called a pack style race where instead of just two athletes on the start line on either side, you have, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 athletes out there. So it felt, I, I was an athlete who loved to race and I loved mm-hmm. racing against other athletes. And I loved the strategy of drafting and passing. And that was just really fun to me. So towards the end of my career, I had lost all interest in long track speed skating from, from my participation. I love watching long track. To me, it's, it's beautiful. It's just awesome to see. And especially the men and women's 500 meter and the thousand meter and the 1500 meters. Those are just incredible. Just the sheer power and velocity of ballistic strength required. It's like watching our version of a men or women's 100 meter dash. Yeah or hundred yard, whatever. It's, it's really, really powerful. So I just, I didn't like it as much. I, I don't, I don't like racing against the clock. That seemed very boring for me. I liked racing against other athletes and testing my might against them. That's cool. That's very cool. Well, I know you've always kind of talked about your Rocky style type training and like crazy workouts. Did that start right at the beginning or was that something you kind of like got into later at some point? Uh, that was, that was much later. <laughs> That was much later. That was, uh, I would say, towards the last half of my career. Well, then we'll get to that in a minute then. Because I want to ask you too about, because you you started and you were really good kind of at the beginning, right? And and were getting scouted to move to Lake Placid. Like, how did all of that come about? So the story that kind of unfolds is at the age of 14, I had been, you know, already starting to compete in some of the local domestic competitions here in the U.S., And as a part of that process, I was given an opportunity to go and train in Lake Placid, upstate New York, as a part of the junior development training program. And this is an invite-only program, so you have to meet a certain criteria or qualification associated with being invited to come train officially. And the beauty about being a part of that program is now you've got a structured environment and a dedicated coach and team, which is designed to help you become the best version of yourself to then eventually move on to the senior level or the national team. I didn't know what any of that meant. So I was 14 years old. <laughs> and so when I actually went to the, when I, you know, this is a much longer story here that I could tell you, but the fact of the matter is I went to the training program within six to eight months of me actually training there. I had accelerated so fast that when I went to the national team trials, so this is not just age group related. This is for everyone who was going to compete to be a part of the world team. So we call them world team trials and they pick five men and five women and they go and compete in the world championships later that year in 1997. I ended up winning those trials. So this is very, very strange. So I'm a 14 year old kid, but I still have braces. Okay. And I'm still wearing my swim coat in the heat box. Like I don't have any of the gear <laughs> like that you normally would have in speed skating. I just was like, I was so fresh and so new. Like I didn't know. And I always remember Highland Swim Club, like this blue and red, like long jacket, you know, like you wear, like when like you're a just a parka type thing, yeah. a little parka. Yeah. It's like, you know, head to toe. And I was literally the only kid wearing like a, like who the hell's wearing a swim club thing in the middle of an ice <laughs> ring. Um, and that's why I, I stood out, but I ended up winning that competition. So to give you perspective, and I always look back on this because at the time it felt so natural and I was just so naive and didn't really understand. But now looking back, you know, I was racing against men who were 30, 35 years old, who had been skating and training longer than I had been alive on this planet. And I was beating them with ease, which was very, very weird. And it wasn't until 
you know, many years later that I realized like what that really meant. And I just remember winning the competition and kind of just being like a deer in headlights, going to the world championships, going to the banquet after the world championships, and then seeing that I couldn't go out with the team like and go basically go celebrate with everybody after the after the season was over for like another seven years. And I'm like, this is weird. Like seven <laughs> years feels like a, it feels like an eternity right. as a 14 year old. And so my life and my career in the sport skyrocketed during that time. And then the following year, which a lot of people don't know, is I actually I came back home. I didn't train. I didn't do anything in the off season. You know, going through puberty as a young kid. I'm, I'm turning 15. How long is the off season? The off season, well, this is back then. So we used to have four months where no one would train as a team. You would just go home and you would train just solo with your own respective, you know, hometown. And I didn't know that the off season during an Olympic year. So this is 1997 to the 1998 Olympic year. This off season was particularly the most important training season of all because it's it's Olympic year and you're setting up the foundation and preparation to give you the anaerobic and aerobic threshold and base fundamental layer that will carry you throughout the rest of the year. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that you were supposed to train. When I heard the term off season, I was like, great, the light switch goes off. I'll see you guys in four months. (laughs) I love it. I'm just thinking back to like, yeah, if I was young like that, I can totally see that happening. Like, all right, time to play and time to just be a kid. And (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut were my favorite <laughs> places to be. I think that's, I, I, I mean, I, I gained like 20 something pounds in the off season. Oh my goodness. You know, but I'm also going through puberty. I mean, I'm just like, I'm, like, I'm a right. young kid just like hanging out. And yeah. I literally didn't touch the bike. I didn't touch skates. I didn't go for a ride. I did, I did, I did absolutely zero activity. <laughs> and you combine that with a mindset that is highly erratic unfocused and not driven in a way that is required to achieve, you know, optimal results and you have a recipe for disaster. And so when I arrived back into the training program, which then because of my accomplishments in the, the previous trials, I then went to go train in Colorado Springs at the official Olympic training center. And I was now part of the national team. And so I just remember arriving and and the day that we had our body composition tests, taking my shirt off, and I was like, whoa, no one else's belly looks like mine. This is interesting. Oh, no. um, and I just had this like spare tire around my midsection, oh, no. you know? And I didn't know, like I didn't, I, I actually, I still don't really know. I, I'm only reciting this because a friend of mine who's a teammate <laughs> told me when he was observing me in this like area, he was like, oh, that well, we're going to count that guy out. Um, and so, you know, I'm this 15-year-old kid. I have no direction. I'm highly resistant against authority. The coach that I had before, who was my head coach, who was excellent at priming and helping me get to my best, he was now the assistant coach, but he was, you know, kind of delegated to just doing like very small mundane tasks. He didn't have power and control over the training program. And so I was in a totally different environment that was, that went from, we're going to have fun as kids. You're going to play on the ice. Oh, by the way, we're also going to help you get really fast. Right. And that that seemed like it made sense as a 14 year old. Now I was a 15 year old. All of a sudden you snap your fingers. Now I'm in a structured training environment where blood, sweat, tears, pain, suffering, trauma are involved from a lot of these other athletes. Right. And I didn't know that. I didn't know what it felt like psychologically to win a race or lose a race and have that haunt you for years. And most of the people that I was training with did because they had given up 
families and jobs and school to pursue this one sole path and to be a part of the Olympic team. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be in Colorado Springs. I had no interest in training. I went through the motions the entire year. And then when I arrived at the 1998 Olympic trials, before the competition even began, I had already told my teammates, I'm not going to make the team. And there's a video of me crossing the finish line dead last in one of the races and my head is down and you could just feel the energy. Not only did I finish dead last in that race, Laura, but I finished dead last in the competition. So within a less than a one-year time frame, I went from being at the top of the mountain, all of the parents and the speed skating community and even the US Olympic Committee buzzing about this young phenom who had this tremendous talent and energy, who was going to reinvigorate men's speed skating in a way that had never been before in short track. And at a flip of a switch, I was now being talked about as being a statistic, as being a kid who had it all but threw it away, who didn't didn't know what hard work and discipline was. And that was painful, right? When you hear that chatter. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how did you you hear a lot of that? And like, how how did that yeah affect you? You could hear it. And then also, you know, I was so young that I didn't really, really understand. But I think deep down, I knew that something was wrong there. And it wasn't wrong because I didn't make the team. It was wrong, I think, in the way that I approach and my intentionality associated with this particular, you know, Olympic trials. And so my father... You know, I grew up in a single parent household. My father giving me some tough love and seeing that potentially there would be a very negative habit I was forming here took matters into his own hands and essentially says to me, Apollo, I'm very upset at the way that you carried yourself, the way that you raced. I'm not upset that you had made that they didn't make the team, but I, I see something of an issue here. This next part's really interesting because. We, we fly back to the Seattle area. My dad then drives me three and a half hours southwest of downtown Seattle into an area of Washington state where we would spend our holidays. And we didn't grow up with a lot of money. So nature was my dad's playground for me. That's where he taught me everything that I know. That's where, you, you know, these long drives is where, you know, I would learn a lot about what some of these things are and why nature was so important. And, you know, that, that was, that's all we had. So my father takes me to one of these cabins that we used to spend time at during these holiday seasons. And the area of Washington State is called Copalis Beach. So it's near an area called Moclips. Now, if you look this up on, on a map, it's literally three and a half hours just southwest. It basically goes around Puget Sound and it's right on the Pacific Ocean, which sounds amazing. But the Pacific Northwest in the winter, by the way, no one's in the water because it's rough it's not like going to Florida and seeing white sandy beaches. Like this is a totally different environment here. Not inviting. <laughs> not inviting. And it's also raining, like literally every single day, all day. And it's, I look back and to me, it's beautiful now and I can't wait to be there. But at the time, it was something that I think was, was very, very, very different. And so my father drops me off at this cabin and he says, you're going to stay here alone at the age of 15, by the way, until you figure it out what it is that you want to do with your life. I don't care if you want to go back to school. doesn't matter to me if you want to go pursue another Olympics. Whatever it is, I want to see real dedication and commitment from you because whatever you're doing now is you're going through the motions and I'm not going to allow that. Whoa. This is 15 years old. So my dad drops me off and I'm, I'm there alone at this cabin. 
<laughs> I have food and I have like clothes. What was going through your head? I have no idea. I was like, <laughs> what the hell? That's exactly was what was going on in my head. What is what? Like, what do you mean? I'm going to be here alone? Like this, it just felt like punishment, to be honest with you. And so all I have is a journal and my clothes and like some workout gear. And I start mindlessly training. And lo and behold, on like day seven or eight, when I'm there, I call my dad from the payphone, and I tell him I've made a decision. He doesn't ask me what the decision was, but he comes and picks me up from that, that place. And, you know, I tell him on the way home, you know, I want to give this speed skating thing a try one more time. And I'm going to really, truly commit myself and I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to put myself out there. Whether I win or lose doesn't really matter, but I'm going to really go through the motions to really be able to say that I can have the satisfaction of putting the effort required to have some level of fulfillment in that path and process. And I think from that moment, everything in my life had changed, not only in terms of the intensity and drive I had towards the sport, but also this this desire to kind of leave no stones unturned in my preparation. So through that tough love that my father gave me was this incredible life lesson of, look, you cannot control the outcome in your life. However, you can you can place your bets accordingly and put yourself in the best possible chance of achieving that success. And that is on you. Your preparation and your effort and your dedication and your intentionality on a daily basis are within your control. How you feel on a day-to-day basis and how you react and you know the variables of change and performance, those things are seemingly out of your control. However, there's a significant amount of both fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, and satisfaction with going through the process. And I didn't, I couldn't quite articulate that at the time, but I was willing to try it. And my career changed overnight. Do you still have the journal that you had that you wrote in that week? Yeah, I have a couple of pages. They're still at home in Seattle with my dad. Have, Have you looked back at it in recent years? I looked at it about three years ago because a friend of mine wanted to do a documentary on me and and my father, the relationship between us. And um, it was pretty interesting to see the the writing. I just a, a very confused 15-year-old who was very upset and angry at his father, who also was screaming for help, like on paper almost, right? Like, like show me an answer, give me a parting of the clouds, show me lightning, like, and I got none of that. And what I realized was that, and and whether you are someone who is very spiritual or you have your own faith and belief in, in religion, what I found was that sometimes in life, we're not given the answers that we got on television or through a movie, right? We're not, we don't hear the voice. And those who have, that's incredible. I have never heard the voice. What I did hear was an inner compass and an inner true north that kind of led me towards this belief of, you know what's right, you know what to do. And you have to, sometimes in life, you have to take the chance. The only thing that we know that is a guarantee is that if you stay down and you you fail, so to speak, it's only a true failure if you stay down. And I think that I learned that, that through my life as an athlete and through my life and lessons of, of my wins and losses was that I was learning so much throughout those processes and processes of finding that inner true north and that inner compass to make sure that I'm listening to myself and that I can find the answer. And, you know, sometimes you don't hear what that is. You have to take the chance. You have to go out there and just try it and you figure out and you recalibrate and readapt. 
in a way to to kind of you know reengage in which direction you need to be. I love that. So from that point going forward, I mean, you like you said, everything kind of changed, and I'm guessing you never went back to the way things were. It was always kind of this forward mo- motion from there. I think generally speaking, yes. Uh, my my career wasn't you know it wasn't entirely like this upward trajectory. More like mindset, I guess. But the mindset was different. And while inconsistent in its infancy, it was progressing towards something that would, would I would believe to be something that would be my greatest asset, was not my physical strength or my, my, my physiology as an athlete, but was my sheer intensity and drive and consistency of that drive, which I leaned on. So all pain or insecurity or self-doubt or fear of failure, I would use those as tools to really catapult me towards that goal that I was seeking. And so that pain and that feeling that I had of not making the Olympic team in 1998, knowing that I probably could have had I really just dedicated myself, was really, really psychologically painful. And I didn't want to feel that again. And so what do I have to do to build up this armor and this consistency of habit in order to never feel that ever again? And I think that we see that with people all over, right? I always say athletes have this unique ability to tap into something that we all have and that whether it's pain or whether it's drive, whether it's consistency, whether it's discipline, every human has that. It's just whether you are willing to go to that place or not. And so I always said to to my other friends and other teammates was, I have a mindset, and I would say this openly, that you are not willing to go to. I will go to the places in my mind that you are afraid to go through. And I'm willing to do that over and over and over again and to see as a test who's willing to be you know, in the fire the longest, so to speak. Because that's, that's what training sometimes is, right? Is how much pain can you take over long durations of time day after day, training after training, week after week, year after year. And what I found was that there was there was many days that athletes on my team or outside of my team could, they were superior to me in every way. But if you compounded those wins against me versus the time that I spent on a consistent basis, my small incremental gains compounded over time was superior to theirs one weekend of the year that was spectacular. And that's when I became obsessed with everything matters. It's really interesting. Well, and I love this. And I think it's important for people to hear that before you make these great breakthroughs, like a lot of times something really hard happens where you have to, you have this kind of defining moment where you choose, you know, I'm going to go back into the fire and this is going to be different or I'm walking away. And I, I had a similar moment to that too. I, I had only been diving like three years, I guess. And I had a chance to make our Olympic trials. Um, and I had just missed it. I, I had won this prelims. I just needed to make top eight in the finals. It should have been like a cakewalk for me where I was at, but I was, I was so nervous because I won the the prelims. I didn't know how to handle myself. And I, I did really bad. I ended up like two, two points shy of, of making the Olympic trials. And I was devastated. And 1992 Olympic champion, Mark Lindsay came up to me after that. And he's like, I know this is really hard right now, but let this be the fuel for the fire for the next four years. And I totally took those words to heart. And over the next four years, I went through a lot of things um, that were really, really hard. And, uh, but it was that, that 
continual fire and the way you kept adding, you keep adding to it and you change your mindset. Like I may not have, like you said, what all these other people have, but I am not going to stop and I'm going to keep plugging away and doing everything that I can do on this consistent basis. And I'm going to get there because I have something upstairs and in my heart that other people around me do not have. And I'm willing to bet that like same, very similar I feel like at least what I had seems very similar to what you're describing to me. It's really cool. So, so how going forward then, obviously your mindset changed. What, how did training change? Did you go back to um, the Olympic Center, the Olympic Training Center? And what was that like from there? So I did. I went back to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. After the decision to start dedicating myself, I then moved back to Lake Placid to do a training camp while the Olympic team was preparing for the Olympics. And we watched the Olympics on television that winter in February. We watched them from Lake Placid while doing our bike workouts and just thinking like, man, like we should be there. That like, that like That's painful not being there. And, you know, three months after the Olympics had completed, we were then preparing for the world team trials again. But this is back, the format's different. Now, if you make the Olympic team, you're automatically a part of the world team for that season. Back then, they still had a tr- they had another trials, which is probably painful for a lot of these athletes, right? Because they just completed the Olympics and they had to go try out again. Yeah. But anyway, so they did. And I actually got sixth place. I think I fifth or sixth place, something like that. And I was basically the double alternate on the team, which means that I wasn't going to race individually, but I was going to be a part of the team and maybe skate the relay and I remember being at those world championships. This is 1998 again. In that world championships, I didn't do anything other than just write in my journal. And so when you're an athlete and you're on the world team and you're traveling and all you're doing is just talking about in your head about what you are going to do when you return back home, it's really powerful, right? When you have these, these kind of, I call them personal promises. When you promise yourself, that is really interesting. So when I went back home after that World Championships, I didn't call my friends. I wasn't hanging around with the bad crowd anymore. I instead did something totally different. What I did was I set up a bike in the basement. And during that summer, the off season, I trained so hard. And I didn't know structure around hypertrophy or you know all these training terms. I just knew that just to go hard. So my foot was on the gap every day. I just went hard as hard as I could every day for like three months. And I had gotten incredible shape. I was training twice a day, every single day, sometimes three times a day. It <laughs> just didn't wow. make any sense. And I was going to school and I'd get up early and after school and, you know, just doing this. But when I arrived back in the training center in Colorado Springs, I was a different athlete and everyone saw that and knew that. I mean, I, I actually was still, then I, even though I was ranked number six, it was clear that I was head and shoulders above the rest of the team. I was just in a, I was operating in a different realm. And so that began my career and my trajectory, like I said before, of a different type of mentality. And that's what I did that was different. And the training was different too. And then then I started to get interested in sports psychology and visualization, meditation, mindfulness. And I, I started to really research a lot about Eastern philosophical beliefs and systems and also training around the mind particularly. And then I was lucky enough at the age of 15 uh, to get introduced to someone who was then kind of our assistant coach at the time, but he was studying at Colorado's college, uh, sports psychology. And this guy was deeply, deeply a big believer of mindset, visualization, journaling, and sports psychology as a profession. 
And he was the first one who introduced me into that world. And that is when my career really changed because I had this you know, natural ability to skate, but didn't have the focus. It didn't have the consistency. And I had this untapped reservoir of potential. And that was my mind. And I was, he was like, look, you, you want to have better technique? Well, you can visualize that millions of times in your head until your body starts to recognize that this is what it's supposed to be. And I didn't, at the time, I was like, what are you talking about? You're not a speed skater. You don't know anything about this. But it was slowly over time becoming real. And I was starting to see how powerful sports psychology, self-talk, positive self-talk, goal setting, visualization, all these modalities and instruments that are at our fingertips. All of us have this. And I didn't know that it was always there. And then I also started to see that many athletes actually didn't practice this. They didn't even know. And, and, and most either maybe did it naturally, so they didn't have to. But for me, it was the game changer. Well, isn't it funny how everybody says, oh, sports are 90% mental, but no one trains that way. Yeah, It's crazy. Like I, I had a, an instance before in 2000, before my first Olympic Games, I actually shattered my foot. I broke it in three different places about three months before our Olympic trials. And I obviously couldn't get in the water, but my coach really like implemented video study and visualization on me. And I, I'd kind of done it a little bit in the past, but never really full time. And since I couldn't be there, I mean, I was literally visualizing six hours a day and he would have me standing on top in my crutches and my cast on top of the 10 meter going through my actions and visualizing at the same time and, and all of that. And it was amazing. I had two and a half weeks before our Olympic trials that I actually got my cast off and could be in the water ended up winning the Olympic trials, I blew everyone away by about 40 points because of the power of the mind. And that's when I realized, okay, this is really real, like what that can do. And now, you know, they have all these studies saying there's one that talks about how they had a control group lifting weights and those who lifted weights physically gained about 30% of muscle strength. And then they had a group that was just visualizing lifting weights, but not touching them at all. And that same, that group that visualized it still gained 13% of muscle mass. So it wasn't as much as the people doing it, but think about if you're actually lifting weights and visualizing it, like how much more, you know, so then you start to realize like how powerful the mind is. And I, I love that you got into that. And I, at some point I want to talk to you even more about that outside of the podcast, but this is awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it was, it was powerful. So how did you use all of that going into 2002? I had two particular sports psychologists who were really influential in my life. One of them was David Creswell, who then went on to have this incredible career who runs the high performance lab out of Carnegie Mellon. And his like Google scholar list is outrageous. The guy's done so many clinical trials and white papers and research papers on the power of meditation and mindfulness and visualization for people who have debilitating, uh, debilitating diseases. He's done incredible things. He's been a great friend of mine too. And then the other man was Doug Jowdy. And Doug was based in Boulder, Colorado at the time. He was a part of our team from 1999 to 2000, 2001. Doug was the guy who started to really help me implement real, actual training with the mind. So we used biofeedback. We used this device with basically all these nodes that would be on my head, around my forehead. Oh, wow. And then that would that would actually be reading these kind of frequencies and signals on a computer screen. And I would watch them. And, and he, he taught me how to calm my mind, how to focus in on one sole thing. And Doug was the one who helped me go from, I would say, being at like 85 percentile to finding a new gear. I had this 
this device. And I don't remember the name of the device. I just remember it was called the G2. And essentially, it looked like a mouse, like a, um, like a computer mouse. Okay, so imagine like a cordless computer mouse, but it had like a, a flap in which you could put your your ring finger and then your middle finger into, and it would read the reactive, I think, energy, perspiration, all these kind of uh, readouts. But this is, by the way, this is the year two thousand nineteen ninety nine two thousand. So this is a lot. This is twenty years ago we were using this. On the other side, it had a small earpiece, so it had a um, an earphone that went from the mouse to your ear basically a cable, like a headphone. The sound that it would make when you put, would put your finger in, it would be like this very high-pitched, tingy, like, <laughs> and the more calm that your mind went, the tone would get deeper. And it would go, and it would get slower. Now, for the first two weeks that I used this device, I just thought it was like this up and down motion that I tried to just smooth out. And then in the final third week of me using this, this little device, I had this one epiphany breakthrough day where I was just concentrating on my breath. I was being calm, lowering my heart rate, lowering everything. Um, and well, the temperature was increasing in my body, core temperature. And then all of a sudden that tone went from and it went so slow, it started to sound like a metronome. Like that was the sound. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know this existed. I've reached, this is what it was supposed to be like. And it was really fun, right? Because I was essentially this gamification of this mental training mechanism. And what it was doing was it was training my mind to essentially not be so busy. And the mind is very busy, right? You have thousands of thoughts a day. And I think with all social media and everything that's going on, like these things are constantly bombarding you and hijacking your attention. And back then, it essentially allows you to have this clear focus that is so powerful that you can't possibly... It, it was, Laura, it was so cool to feel and see because I literally saw progress and you know what that's like. So as an athlete, when you have progress, it's, it, it's like nitrous to your end. Oh yeah. It's like, oh, this is what it's about. It's that's addicting. Why I, it's addicting. And that's why I always tell people who, you know, who are really down. I was like, you got to find the small wins because you ha- you're not getting them and you got to take pleasure in those small wins. Because if you feel like you're just losing, 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 no progress, you're not going to get it. You have to taste. You got to get to first base. Just get to first base. Forget about home runs. Forget about grand slams. Forget about winning the game. Just get to first place. What do you have to do to get to first base? And that's what this was. And that year, Laura, I'm, I, I swear to you, that year, I think I won 97% of all of the races I skated. Are Every you serious? Season, I smashed the entire competition. Wow. So much so that on the second competition of the year, the reigning world champion, junior world champion, Olympic champion came up to me after the race had finished. And this was a guy, by the way, who was very cocky and very arrogant. He came up to me and he says, Ono, oh Ono, oh you are number one. You are best short tracker. And I was like, wow. Whoa. I have him. I, cra- I cracked him. Like I cracked his psychology to where it was a different realm. And so People may ask, like, well, so, so, like, what, what changed? Like, okay, great, you made this weird sound and made it go down. Like, what the hell's that got to do with the performance? So, it had this to do with my performance. I'll explain it to you. I was able to make such assertive intentionality around each training, pre, during, and post, that the quality of my training went so high. If I had a two-hour ice session, by the way, the Koreans would skate four to six hours on the ice. We only had one session a day back then. 
And then later on, we skated multiple times a day. But back then, we were only doing one two-hour session a day. So I said, that seems like a disadvantage to me. So I remember telling Doug, how do I make the two hours feel like four hours? And he's like, you absolutely can. But it's going to require you to not be joking and messing around all the time with your teammates. And it may seem like you are distancing yourself, but I'm just going to tell you, why don't you try X, Y, and Z exercise? And so every day I went to the ice rink, I was in a dry land exercise. I sought to have more training. I wore a weight vest on the ice. I would, instead of taking the rest in between the men and the women, you know, trading back and forth between who has the track and who doesn't, I would just skate on the back of the women's pack with my weight vest. And then as soon as that was finished, I'd take the weight vest off and I would go train with the men and back and forth and back and forth. So the volume that I was doing was so high I would train before the workout. I would do like a running workout, like as a warm up, And then after I would do another workout. And then I did everything to a T, you know? So the cool down, I would do the 20 minute cool down run. I would stretch, I would meditate. When I was getting a, a deep tissue body work, I would visualize cellular healing, blood flow up my legs. And so when you compound that over weeks and weeks of time, the quality of your training goes so high your ability to decipher volume and load and intensity and intentionality, it's just, you're just in a different place. And so we often try to separate the physicality from our mind. And I always say, no, no, they go hand in hand. Like, remember the last time that you went into something and you just went through the motions versus really visualizing the day before, the morning of, during the workout, and even after. It is such a profound difference in performance that to do anything less than, you're leaving stuff on the table. And so, look, everyone has their own way of preparing and training. For me, that's what worked in my world. And I just became so obsessed with it and even during you know the rest periods, because I wasn't getting as much rest as everyone else, during the time when I would finish the set or repetition, I then, until we started again, I would maximize that 60 seconds or 30 seconds or two minutes or eight minutes or 16 minutes where I would really, really try to bring my heart rate down and really recover versus like pushing and messing around and talking. And that's what worked for me. Some of the other athletes talking and messing around, that's what helped them relax. And that, that would, that's what worked, right? Everyone's different. But for me, it was that just that intentionality around, okay, set's just done. I've got six minutes until the next one. I've got six full minutes to really, really bring the heart rate down to begin to recover and prepare for the next set. And it was just, it was a game changer, man. It was just, it was so powerful. Were you able to hold the same intensity and intentionality through the rest of your career? I would say almost from a consistency basis, I definitely did. The mindset practice and training came and it would come and flow. So sometimes I would do it more, sometimes I would do it less. And, you know, I would get distracted times where like anyone, I would play, pay less attention to it. And then usually I would have a result or a, res- or a race where I would not get the result that I, that I was seeking. And I would have to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate what had just happened. What was missing? What was I doing before during my best races? What was I doing? And try to essentially just try to replicate that. So I'm sure it kind of became more natural for you too in a lot of ways over time, or did it not? On the days that I was in real flow state, it was like a light switch. It was just so, it was awesome. And then there was days I really struggled, really struggled. I was like, God, I can, I'm not getting it today. Just, it's not, it's not here, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. 
Would you offer yourself grace on those days or would you beat yourself up inside? Back then, I did. there was no grace, unfortunately. Looking back, I think it would have been a much more healthy psychological balance had I been seeking progress versus perfection every day. But I took everything personally back then. Everything was a personal attack, whether it was a teammate, you know, threatening to be who was dominant in a training session or a race I just lost or an inability to perform during a practice or a training or a competition. Everything scarred me in some degree. And it was it wasn't healthy, right? It wasn't healthy back then. But when it comes down to sheer performance, I think there was no one that was more driven. So, okay. So I want to talk about 2002 and I mean, you, you definitely won gold, but I think your most memorable event was your very first one where you were in, won the silver. And I would love for you to walk us through that. Cause it was, I mean, in short track, we know anything can happen. Everything can go wrong. Um, and it kind of did. So what was that first race like? So the first race in 2002, this is my first Olympic games. I'm 19 years old. I'm in my first Olympic final. I'm a favorite to win this race. I had been on the cover of Sports Illustrated going into the Olympic Games. I was being concentrated on by NBC. It was nuts. It was it was crazy. All the pressure was on. Did you like that or was it too much? I didn't like it, no. But I also did at the same time. Like I felt <laughs> like it was a distraction, but I also loved pressure. And I always, I, I seemed to be able to adapt to pressure in ways that yielded the best returns for me. So in the men's 1,000 meters, it's a nine-lap race, and I have five athletes in the race, including me. I have a South Korean, I have a Chinese, I have a Canadian, myself, and then an Australian. And in this race, I had been in a really great position strategically. About three laps to go, I begin my attack. I was in second place, and I pass into first place with two and a half laps remaining, and then I just turn on the afterburners. I go all out. And I just start attacking as hard as I possibly can. And going into the last corner, so each each lap in, in this race is about eight and a half seconds long, maybe nine seconds long at the most. Going into the last corner, the Chinese athlete who was who was trying to pass on the outside, he's trying to pass me on the outside, he fell. I swing wide because we had some contact going into that last corner. A South Korean tries to pass on the inside because he had so much speed that he was building up behind me. In the middle of the corner, which you don't pass in the middle of the corner. You pass coming out of or you know, going into the corner, but you don't pass in the middle of the corner. Mm-hmm. And this athlete falls, this South Korean athlete falls into me, takes me down. He falls down. So the Chinese went down. South Korean goes down. I go down. We take out the Canadian who's behind us. Oh, geez. So all four are now fallen into the pads. And then the Australian athlete, who's over a half lap behind, he's like totally out of the race, crosses the finish line first because everyone fell. And I scramble, get to my feet, throw my skates across the finish line because we measure the the, the timing of the races by your by your uh, blade, not by your chest, like track and field. Mm-hmm. And I ended up winning silver, very discombobulated, have no idea what's happened, very in shock and awe. And this, this Australian athlete, who actually name was Stephen Bradbury, who won Australia's only winter Olympic gold medal, ends up winning this race. And that was a defining moment for my career because it was post 9-11. So this is 9-11-2001, only a few, like, you know, six several months later. Months or something. Later. Six yeah. months later, you've got the Olympic Games and the country is hungry to mourn and to come together. 
And it was a very uni, uni, uh, unifying and solidifying moment for our country. Oh, yeah. Where they were just cheering for one team. It was very, very powerful. And I had this race where I was supposed to win and I didn't. And so people were upset and I was upset. And I remember someone asking me as I walked back out for the, for the, the ceremonies, for the medal ceremonies. They said, Apollo, Apollo, how does it feel to have just lost the gold medal? Oh my gosh. And I remember thinking in my head, like, what the hell is this person talking about? I didn't lose the gold medal. I won the silver. And when I made that statement, I don't really know, I didn't know what the implications would be or that people will respond in a way. But I think that I showed pride and happiness and strength, regardless of what had just happened, that I was grateful for that opportunity. And that was very American. And I think that Americans felt good about that that we had just got knocked down and we weren't going to stay down. I had just got knocked down and I wasn't going to stay down. And so that to me was a really powerful moment, I think, in my career, perhaps more powerful than any of the other seven medals that I won, just merely because it, the timing was, was perfect. We as a country needed to see some athlete like that to get knocked down when he was supposed to win and to not complain about it. And to not gripe about it, but to say, look, that's, hey, that life happens. Short track is like that. And I'm happy to have won this medal. And it was a blessing. It was a real blessing to be able to be there and to have USA on, on my all of our gear and to celebrate the silver as if I won gold. That was really powerful. So that race has never, I've never seen a race like that in the history of the sport since. So we're talking almost 20 years later, 18 years ago, whatever. Uh, I've never seen a race like that. And it was, it was really cool. So I also think, Laura, that this was a time where people were more present. Uh, and I say that like in the most cheeky term, but with everyone and everything going on in the world right now, the attention span is cut by like 85% from 20 years ago to today. And that's just the sheer nature of us having all these gadgets and technologies at our fingertips, right? It's just how it is. Right. But back then, when you watched a sporting event, when you watched a concert, when you watched something live, that's all that you did was you were present. You were there. You were logging this emotionally and on a soul level. And that's why I think with everyone, we all have that one song that we remember where we were, what we were doing, oh, yeah. what had happened. And it's powerful. And so the mind is is powerful, but that moment in time for me was, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I didn't win that race. I'm so grateful that the race had gone exactly the way it did because anything else would have been different. Oh, uh, that's so cool. I, I love hearing that. And I, I, I hope the athletes listening also take that in, that it's not, it doesn't always turn out the way you want it to or the way you plan on it, but it could be something even greater because it doesn't turn out the way you were planning on it. You know what I mean? It could give you a whole new trajectory in a really amazing way. I mean, let's, I know we're, I, w I could talk to you all day long, but I know we're coming short on time. So I do want to fast forward, like going into your third Olympic games, you now have what, five medals already going into your third Olympic games, like getting ready. Yeah, that's right. But it was a totally different experience for you going into Vancouver in 2010, wasn't it? I know your training changed. I think your mindset changed. Like what, how was it different from the first Olympics to the third Olympics? The third Olympics was different for the following reasons. One, I'm extremely experienced. I had been to the games twice. I had been competing for almost 15 years now. 
but the change in sport was also happening. So there was a massive evolution of technology, body type, genetics, the world understanding training, sports physiology, everyone was doing mindset training, et cetera. And you accompany that with the fact that I had been at the pinnacle, I'd been at the top podium consistently over the course of those 12 plus years. So the athletes who I'd been racing against in 98 and in 2002, many of them, Laura, had retired. And as a part of that retirement, this is what's really interesting. As a part of that retirement, many of them went on to be coaches. So from 2002 till 2010, many of those athletes who had retired were now going to be in the coach's box in 2010, eight years after we had raced together. Wow. So I was still on the ice racing. They were the ones designing strategies and training programs to beat me. And <laughs> for those that did or could or didn't beat me, the target was still on my back. So my style of skating strategically was well known around the world. My strengths and weaknesses were starting to be revealed consistently throughout the training and the environment. So what I felt was that I needed to have a real game plan change. I needed to pivot. I need to reinvent. I needed to adapt to the current climate because what I was doing before was not going to help me succeed in 2010. And I had this conversation in 2006 and 2007. So I had about three years of complete radical transformation that I wanted to have happen. And it was really hard. So I became utterly obsessed with cutting about 10 plus pounds off of my body weight because the sport had become so sport specific. And what I mean by that is in short track speed skating, just like in, let's call it the Tour de France, when you see the guys who specialize in the mountain stages on the Tour de France, they are like stick figures. They have no mass at all. They're a huge engine, but like no chassis. They're just like just shells of a body. And what I saw was that, especially in the Asian countries, these athletes were naturally built very light. So while I walked around at 165, 165 pounds in 2002, in 2010, or sorry, 2006, I walked around at about 155 to 157 pounds. In 2010, I wanted to walk around at around 145 to 157 pounds, which would have been the lightest I had been since I was 14. Whoa. In the 2006 Olympics, I was very lean. Like I was, I was shredded. I was, I was fit. I was strong, but I probably had some upper body muscle that was unnecessary. And so I had to just strip all of that away. And what the next process was, was I decided to hire my strength and conditioning coach, have him come live with me in my house in Utah and design an additional training program on top of the national team training program to eliminate that excess muscle mass. And it was brutal because I essentially went into a complete catabolic state for about eight months of training while not overtraining, while not, I guess we were overtraining. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, I, I ended up through this like extreme training methodology and I arrived into Vancouver at like a svelte, like 143 and I competed around 142 to 145. And I was still just as powerful and strong. I didn't have the same ballistic power. Like think of someone who's like a, an excellent, like um, like a power, like a, when you watch like a, someone do a power clean, mm -hmm. I didn't have that power because I think we had trained some of it out of me, but the game plan was different. 
and the strategy was different. And I, I, I tell you, I was a different athlete technically. Uh, I was a different athlete mentally. The style of my skating was different. I mean, everything had changed. Did you ever have like doubts going into that? Like, am, am I making the right decision? Are we doing the right thing? Like, is is this working? Like, yeah, many times, many times, I had doubted and second guessed, and it was a choice and a decision I think that I had made. Not so much based on the fact that is this the best physiological sports science decision I could make, or is this about something deeper? Is this about me satisfying a deeper hunger and urge to try something new, to exhaust all of the options in having that target be the Olympics in the next couple of years? And I think it was the latter. It was really about me exhausting any and all of the options, leaving no stones unturned in that preparation. And there was many times when I said to myself, I don't know if this is working. I feel so weak. I'm so hungry. I'm so tired. I don't have more to give. And it was like a scene out of Rocky, you know, when I had hired this guy out of Philadelphia and he was a strength and conditioning coach. And he had no, he had been training me since 2004. And I had told him my goals. And he's like, okay, well, uh, you know, this is, here's the house rules. There's going to be times when we're doing, your third and fourth workout in the basement on the treadmill or in the weight room of your house. And you're going to tell me that you don't want to do it. There's going to be times when I give you a small piece of salmon, smaller than the palm of your hand with asparagus for dinner after three or four training sessions. And you're going to say that you are starving and this is an appetizer. And I'm going to say you get no more and you're going to have to listen to that. And you're going to have to remain committed. And it was not easy. It was very hard. I had many training sessions where the national team coaches were questioning my choice and decision to do this because I wasn't able to perform to what they wanted me to perform on the ice. But I was betting that once my body had stabilized and I had cut that weight, that that, that, that was the new normal for me. And it was. And I showed up at the Olympic Games in 2010, a different athlete under circumstances that the odds were really stacked against me. There were so many great athletes during those Olympics in Vancouver, and I was extremely consistent. I medaled in just about every single race. That's so awesome. And you became the most decorated speed skater, right, uh, from America of all time, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a misnomer, right? Because if you look at speed skating, like we race so many races, right? So it's just like swimming, like you know, you have a guy who goes into an you know, Olympics, he can win potentially 10 medals. Right. Then you've got like a wrestler or- A diver. Like, yeah. <laughs> or a diver. And one shot at one medal. That's it. Right. But so still, like, it's as as a person who can only earn one medal in my one event, I'm still very impressed because you, you still have to go out and do it. Just because you have more options doesn't mean you're going to do it every time. It's still impressive. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still there, but- uh, I think it's more, it's more like external signaling, right? Of like society saying, wow, right. you have so many medals. And it's like, okay, but like, what about the, like, I always say this, like, what about like the wrestler who had won three Olympics in a row and he won gold back to back to back? Right. Like that to me is crazy. Outrageous. Yeah. Right. Well, I love your, I love your humility and I love the way you, you are always like concerned about other athletes and making sure people are getting their due respect too. I, I absolutely love that. And I loved that you were like in that recent HBO sports documentary um, with Michael Phelps, The Weight of Gold. I really appreciate your comments in that. If we had more time, we'd go into that. Maybe I'll have you back on. We can talk about that some more, but yeah, we'll do, we'll do a part two. 
Yes, that would be amazing. Thank you so much, Apollo, for taking your time and just inspiring us and encouraging us and reminding us like what's important and to keep our focus and, and consistency is just probably the biggest key in all of that. But um, just thank you. Is there any any parting words that you want to share with our athletes listening? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Laura. It's great to hear your voice, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on your on your uh, your show. And I think for those who are listening, I think a couple of things to remind yourself of is this path of the sporting world is never easy. There's days when it makes the most sense and there's days when it just makes no sense at all. I can tell you as someone who cared about nothing other than sport for the predominantly most of his life and now having been 10 years retired out of sport, to truly appreciate all aspects of your journey in the athletic pursuit and that the real value that sport has for you as a human going through this experience on this planet is to attack it and to have fun with it and to play and to appreciate and just maximize your time spent because sport is going to be your catalyst for the rest of your life. It will give you the strengths, the attributes, the skill sets, the consistencies of being able to have transferable skills that go anywhere else. And to just know that this one part of who you are is going to be a fundamental identity that at some day going back and forth in the swim lane or going in circles on an ice rink are no longer important. And so you will have to make the choice of, do I retire? And if I do, what is next? And to don't delve into the realm of, I have no other skill sets, but instead say, I've got all the tools necessary I now have to go into an uncertain and uncomfortable arena in which to grow, which is the next career path. But I'm going to take the same intensity and drive and focus that I have from sport and apply it in a different arena. And the last thing I would say is you only get one shot. So regardless of your outcome, which to me is is a great metric to use, but it's somewhat irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. If you only have one shot and you've got this opportunity of being in sport, don't waste it. It is a gift to you. And so every up, every down, every mediocre performance is an incredible learning experience and opportunity to light that fire within. And I promise if you approach your sport with that type of mentality, you will have an incredible experience that regardless of outcome, you will walk away from sport with your head held very high with lessons to share to the world. Wise words from a great champion. Thank you, Apollo. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.